This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah once again this week. It is now time to check in with show contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Yeah, I feel like we've been hearing a lot more about Airbnb again, uh, just now that where we are with COVID and travelers coming back, being here, lots of tourists again. So we got through that hump with Airbnb, where people who had Airbnb apartments, suites, houses to rent, uh, a lot of people during the pandemic, during the height of the pandemic, when there were no tourists here, what they did was take it off the market and offer it as a temporary rental to people in Vancouver and for lower price than they normally would. Well, now Airbnb seems to be booming again in Vancouver. The prices have, I've noticed, gone back up to pre-pandemic prices. And a lot of people in my community use Airbnb. They use it when they travel, but a lot of people in my community also rent out on Airbnb. They'll rent out a suite or in their home, or maybe it's a, a condo in their family, things like that. And what I was hearing from some of them is that they had plans to move back in with their parents. We're talking about people who own their own place, are in their late 20s or 30s or even 40s. One of my friends who's in her 40s is doing this, moving back in with their parents in the suburbs in order to be able to rent out their condo unit in downtown Vancouver because of how expensive life is today. And then I recently wrote the, read this uh, article in the Globe and Mail that said, uh, staying in a hotel is cheaper than staying in an Airbnb in some Canadian cities. And I looked it up and yeah, you know, right now to stay in an average hotel in Vancouver, it's about $250 a night to stay at an average uh, Airbnb one bedroom, including those very steep uh, cleaning fees that they charge in Vancouver is like around $260, $270. And I just feel like now our city needs to really positively clamp down on Airbnb and fix what's going on because we have a rental crisis where people can't find a decent place to live in uh, on a permanent basis or a long-term basis. And it's because there are all these, the market's flooded with uh, Airbnb units instead that are now pushing out the hotel industry too. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at the prices and what people are charging. I thought that BC or that, sorry, that the city of Vancouver had kind of uh, clamped down on short-term rentals, but I, I guess people will always find a way to get around or find loopholes. Somewhat. So a lot of strata councils in various buildings uh, throughout Metro Vancouver were put the question, um, homeowners were, and they were told, okay, look, you can all agree to do Airbnb um, and have it as an option for people who live in this building, or we can outlaw it. And so the ones who outlawed it have given away that right. They can't, nobody in the building can Airbnb their unit. But some of the places where you are allowed to Airbnb, like a, a friend of mine who Airbnbs her place on Main Street, it's a tiny 
one bedroom condo. And, you know, just for eFest, which we know is no longer happening, but she uh, was going to rent it for $450 a night. Hmm. And it's a tiny place. It's a little shoebox, nothing special, but $450 a night, including uh, that cleaning fee. Of course, I'm sure the hotels were probably also more expensive that weekend as well uh, to to match people's demand. But uh, now I just think that this the system is so uh, just kind of mangled to the point that if people are moving out of their own one tiny thing that they own in order to live with other people or to, in some cases, rent elsewhere, there is something wrong with the system. And I know, too, that you're uh, supposed to have a short-term rental, a business license to do that. But I've always been curious, too, if people actually do that, if there is any enforcement that people are are doing uh, the rental or making sure they're, they're going through all the paperwork. So I understand that there is enforcement uh, and the people that I know who are uh, renting out a place on Airbnb do have those licenses because I understand that uh, there is some kind of an audit. How thorough is it? Does it catch everyone? I'm not sure, but I know the city has done some things to try to control Airbnb from that side of things. All right. Uh, Interesting to see all of that coming back. Raji, thank you so much. We'll talk to you a bit later on in the show. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 ZKNW. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, there are still a lot of questions about the cancelled e-fest in Vancouver and thousands of people still wondering if they are going to get a refund. People who have shelled out hundreds of dollars for tickets. We now know a bit more, though, about what led up to the cancellation. Post Media News filed a Freedom of Information request and the documents that they received from that request shed a bit more light on the days and weeks leading up to the cancellation. We also now know there could potentially be a class action lawsuit representing eFest ticket buyers. Those are the people looking for those refunds. And Richard Chang is a lawyer with Diamond and Diamond Lawyers in Vancouver looking into the possibility of a class action lawsuit. Richard Chang, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Joe. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, uh, I know it's in the early stages, but what specifically are you looking at as far as a potential class action lawsuit? Sure. Well, we've been contacted by a number of individuals who had purchased tickets uh, from EFES Canada. And they've, um, when, when the event was cancelled in April, um, they've uh, made requests for refunds. And, and I've been copied in with a number of the email correspondence that these individuals have had with Canadian EFES. And it's, uh, it's a lot of, well, we will advise you in June when the new postponed date is announced and and they just keep getting these emails where they're running around in these circles and these individuals have hit the point where they're quite frustrated so they've reached out to me um, and we're taking a look into this uh, um, with respect to um, potential breaches of contract uh, with uh, the Canadian eFest uh, and uh, One Stop Strategy Group as to um, what they failed to deliver with respect to the formerly e-race in Vancouver. And how much of it is also kind of complicated, I guess, by with the city saying they were going to refund money as long as there was a promise that the money would then go back to ticket holders. They couldn't get that that promise or, or that uh, agreement. And so it seems like things are kind of in limbo there as well. 
there there seems to be many layers of complication here. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the individuals who have purchased tickets, they're not being kept in the loop. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of transparency from uh, One Stop Strategy Group and Canadian eFest uh, to these individuals. And that's why they reached out to me to see if uh, there's something I can do to help them. And I understand as well that EFEST or the people at EFEST have said that they have severed ties with One Stop Strategy Group. And does that make it more complicated as well? That, that's, um, again, that is another layer. Um, um, I, I do understand that from, um, from the post-media uh, article from Mr. Romano that uh, EFES has said that they've severed their contracts. Uh, on top of that, too, um, one, of the re- one of the explanations uh, that was given to purchasers of tickets has been that the event has not been cancelled but postponed. However, when you check the schedule for 2023, I don't see Vancouver on that schedule as of right now. Um, so that's a concern as well. And that's, that's something that has made a number of ticket holders worried, and that's why they've reached out to us at Diamond and Diamond Lawyers. Right. Uh, is it an extreme, it seems like an extreme move to have to take to go the route of a class action lawsuit to get a, t- uh, a ticket refund? It, it would seem extreme, but for an individual ticket holder who maybe spent 400 to to $1,000 on the tickets, um, it wouldn't make sense for them to hire a lawyer individually. So it, uh, it, it is more economically feasible to look at the uh, class action route. And for people as well, is it because technically they've said it's not cancelled, even though, like you said, it's not on the schedule for next year? But if the company is saying it's not cancelled, does that mean that people too, I would assume most people paid for these with credit cards, that they can't go back to their credit card company and try and get a refund? This is what I'm hearing from some individuals that have reached out to us. Some credit card companies have refunded them. Uh, Some credit card companies have refuse refunds because of the the technicality between a cancellation and a postponement. And I've also had individuals whose credit card companies have flat out rejected refunds because it's been after three months since the purchase date. So there's a a mix of uh, individuals out there in terms of the hurdles they're encountering with trying to obtain a refund. And I mentioned as well, Post Media, through Freedom of Information, was able to get documents that shed a bit more light on conversations that were had leading up to the converse, uh, to the cancellation of the event, of the, the kind of the timeline of when more than 30,000 tickets had been sold and then how it came about that it became quite clear that the event wasn't going to be taking place. Have you been able to get that information as well? Or are you able to, to find out more about how things played out? Um, At this stage, we don't have that information. We're still working on uh, putting everything together. Uh, How important is it, though, to get that for you uh, as far as deciding to go ahead or or putting together a class action lawsuit? It it would be important, but I think what's more important is uh, talking to the individuals who have purchased tickets and seeing how they've been impacted. So we've talked to people who have purchased by credit card, and we know some people have purchased through debit card uh, who have no recourse in terms of a company to get get reimbursement. But um, we're we're taking a serious look here at Diamond & Diamond Lawyers just to ensure uh, that the merits of the claim would be um, positive for all parties in terms of ticket holders. And do you have any idea of the numbers then when you said you you found that some people have been able to get a refund through their credit card company and, and obviously a very different response depending on, on how you purchased and who you're dealing with. Uh, of the 33,000 tickets sold, do you have any idea or sense at this point how many people are still looking for refunds? 
we're not sure on those numbers, which is why we've asked anyone who has been impacted to give a, uh, a call or email to uh, us at Diamond and Diamond Lawyers, and we'll get a better idea that way. And so uh, how, what is the best way then for people, if somebody is listening to this and they're in that group of very frustrated people in, in many cases, uh, that uh, out hundreds of dollars looking for that refund or looking to be involved, what is the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, they can either send me an email at rchang at diamondlaw.ca, or they can give us a call at our 1-800 number. That is 1-800-567-HERT or 1-800-567-4878. All right, and, um, and then uh, go from there, I would imagine. Do you know, are there, have there been other class action suits or have there been other cases of people trying to get ticket refunds? Uh, with respect to Formula E, I'm not aware of any. Or even any other event? There, there are other events. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't, just right now, I couldn't uh, name them for you, but uh, but these uh, these types of class actions have occurred in the past. Right. I, I, yeah, I didn't mean to, to put you on the spot there. It just seemed like, especially during COVID, when we were also seeing the, the nuanced difference between cancellations and postponements, it seemed like there were people in that scenario as well. Yes. All right. Well, Richard Chang, thank you so much for your time this morning and for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, with very little testing taking place or reporting taking place of COVID cases, do we have a good idea on infection rates in the community and how do we prepare for the fall season? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Sarah Otto, evolutionary biologist at the University of British Columbia, also a co-editor of the COVID-19 modeling group. Sarah Otto, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Of course. What do we know as far as, or what do you think we we need to know about the current number of infections? How much, I suppose, COVID is circulating in the community right now? I think it's really important for us to know because the risks that we take, whether we mask up and where we mask up, whether we socialize indoors or outdoors, all of those decisions we make every day depend on the current infection risk. And unfortunately, it's really hard to know how many infections are out there. Most people who have symptoms are taking rats at home um, or presuming they have COVID. And so the official numbers don't even, um, are barely capturing the actual incidence of COVID-19 right now in BC. And do you think people's, it seems like even with travel and summer vacations and such, there's not a lot of mask wearing. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of, of measures that are that are taking place. Do you think, is that a mistake that people that we tend to be treating it now as though we're living with COVID and, and going about kind of as normal a life as possible? Well, I do think it's a mistake. And I think if you look at the official numbers, it looks like there's barely any COVID in around. And that's where the mistake lies. Because we're not um, um, counting properly and accounting for how many people are just testing at home, then people don't know what the risks really are. And right now we are, we are seeing, um, it, so there's pieces of evidence that we use. We can use how many cases there are in people over 70. That age group is um, very regularly tested. We can also look at models to say, well, how many people must be infected to see the kind of rises and falls in the current Omicron wave. And all of these different ways of looking at it are saying that we're 50 to 100 fold under reporting the number of COVID infections 
in the province in, at the moment. And so if we saw that same data, but you just raised it by a hundredfold, I think people would be much more careful. They'd be wearing more masks in buses and crowded indoor spaces uh, across the board. What about the numbers of hospitalizations? Are we able to get a more accurate picture there? Yeah, that's a good, that's another um, one of our team members models the hospitalization and from that infers how many infections are out there. And if you look at the hospitalization rate, we um, right now we are at rates that are pretty much higher than all of the pre-Omicron phase. So the first year and a half of the pandemic, um, first two years of the pandemic, we are at higher hospitalization rates currently than that entire first two years. So again, that is telling us uh, that we're massively underreporting. Do we know though when we look at the numbers? So I think it was as of Thursday. The, the, the official number in BC was 331 people in hospital with COVID-19. I mean, obviously it's it's serious if someone's in hospital, but do we know if those numbers are truly reflecting people that have been admitted because of something related to COVID-19, or people who are in hospital and test positive and they discover they have COVID-19 once they're there? Yeah, it's really hard to tease those numbers apart, and the same is true for deaths. We're seeing, um, again, pretty high deaths relative to what we saw in the first two years of the pandemic. And um, disentangling, did did this person enter into the hospital because of COVID? And even with COVID can be complicated because you can have an underlying um, issue that is exacerbated by COVID. And so, again, um, there's a lot of shades of gray there. The death statistics are more carefully um, kind of um, separated out. And if COVID is a major cause of death, maybe if it's the sole cause of death, that's separated out from if there are other causes of death. And, And even there, about half of the causes of death currently are due to COVID. Of the ones that are, are attributed to COVID with. So there's a, and the other ones I think are um, often a contributing factor. And what do we know then as far as what we can expect moving forward? It doesn't seem like we've heard a lot about new variants that we've been dealing with Omicron and subvariant, the, the BA5. What yeah. does it mean that, that it seems like this has been happening for a greater period of time, say, than other variants where we've seen changes? You know, that is a big sigh of relief. And I have to say that is true. We are um, keeping an eye out, but we're not seeing major new variants beyond BA5. That doesn't mean that they're not evolving. It just means that evolution hasn't hit them yet or they're so rare that we're not seeing them. Um, so, I, you know, I think for a while we were seeing wave after wave after wave of Omicron, but that was because Omicron itself was so different. It attacks our cells different. It gets into different parts of our body, more upper airways. And so when it when Omicron first hit, there were lots of kind of tinkering that evolution could do and improve mutations that would still improve it. And I think with BA5, um, not that it's hit the end of the line, but it's just a little bit harder to get something even more transmissible than that. But that um, in no way do I think the evolution of COVID-19 is over, but we just have a little bit of a respite right now. So what do you say to people then who have that kind of sense of security? If you put yourself in this scenario, uh, you're vaccinated and maybe you've had an infection or you're vaccinated, maybe you haven't had an infection, but you've had three shots, maybe four, mm-hmm. uh, where people in those scenarios are feeling pretty good and feeling pretty positive moving forward. Oh, I think I, I think we are in a pretty positive state. If we did not have the level of immunity going into these waves, we'd see much higher hospitalization and death rates. So I think that that our immune system is is, um, is now kicking into gear. Uh, 
it's been estimated that nearly 100 percent of us are have immunity to this virus now, either through vaccination or through infections or both. That hybrid immunity, if you've had an infection and vaccines, is um, found to be even more robust. And that means you can still get infected, especially if your last exposure was a while ago. But you clear the virus faster. Your um, your the memory cells of your immune system kick into gear and clear the virus faster, and and hopefully prevent you from getting into hospital. But again, to emphasize, we're seeing hospitalization rates and death rates currently that are really high compared to what we've seen previously in the pandemic. The only really higher periods of time were the two first um, Omicron peaks this year. And and so that means, and the reason for that is just so many people are getting infected. So the risks to an individual of getting infected are less, but with so much virus around, a lot of people are still getting into hospital and dying. And that's why I think we need to protect. And so I personally, I'm in that hybrid zone. I've got, I've got the um, uh, boosters and I've got a infection and so i've got hybrid immunity but still i mask and i mask everywhere i go publicly because of the importance to others and keeping the virus from circulating within the community and i just call upon bc to do that in closed indoor spaces right so does it i would imagine when you go into an indoor space and see um, people not masking does that make you anxious no, I don't get anxious, but I feel like I am uh, wearing the mask and talking to people about why it's not just about them. It's about everybody. It's about other people in their community. It is a way of signaling concern for others that you're wearing a mask. I think we just need to have these these conversations. And if the infection rate were a lot lower, then maybe it would be okay to not mask in buses or other crowded indoor spaces. But I, I, given the numbers, of the amount of underreporting we're seeing at the moment. I just think that the public needs to know that in order to make those decisions. Right. And and are you able to look at the numbers then as well and kind of predict or or have an idea on what we might be experiencing, what the fall is going to look like? Yeah. So, and, um, and unfortunately, we are seeing with Omicron that our immune system, like that first line of defense, the antibodies in our bloodstream that um, prevent the virus from getting into our cells in the first place, those wane and they wane over a period of a few months. And so we are expecting to see fewer uh, future waves again in the next two, three months just because of that waning. Now, again, severe disease is um, drastically cut down because of um, the kind of subsequent um, immune system kind of kicking into gear and fighting the virus and, and clearing it. But still, we're unfortunately expecting more waves of this, hopefully not um, as high and as severe, but it'll depend again on this unknown question about what the next variant will be like. All right. Uh, Well, we will hopefully chat with you uh, again at that point or within the next few weeks. Sarah Otto, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Listen on your HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on 980 ZKNW. Well, we are now about two weeks into job action by the BCGEU. We know talks are resuming. There is a media blackout, but hopefully there will be some movement at the table. In the meantime, though, we are still seeing picket lines up outside some of the liquor distribution centres in BC. So what does that mean for private liquor stores, pubs, restaurants? Well, on Saturday, the Alliance of Beverage Licensees released the latest results from a survey asking just that. How are you faring while this job action is continuing? And Jeff Guinard joins us now, the Executive Director of Able BC. Jeff, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Oh, it's my pleasure. What did you learn from this survey? Yeah, so uh, the clear message I think we're getting from industry is that while this is a dispute between the BCGU and government, it's hurting us. It's hurting BC's hospitality industry, those pubs and bars and restaurants that you know scraped through the pandemic and are trying to recover. Also, the import agents, folks who bring in all that alcohol to the province that's, that's currently trapped in those warehouses, uh, and certainly cannabis retailers as well. And that's because there's only really one legal source for cannabis for them to purchase, and it's currently behind a picket line. So our industry is starting to feel the pain, and uh, about 80% of them reported that they're concerned about the viability of their businesses if the strike goes on much longer. Which is a big deal, and that's a lot of different businesses really concerned about their future. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's, you know, the strike is now entering the third week. And we said right away when this happening that, you know, it's it's irresponsible to bring our whole entire industry into this when it has this dispute has nothing to do with us. We absolutely support the union's right to strike and do what they need to do. But, you know, we've gone beyond that now. And the only good news here is. Both sides are at the negotiating table. We are begging them to please come up with a deal as quickly as possible because even when we get redistribution restarted, if they were the end of the strike this morning, it's still going to be weeks of disruptions where we get up and running again. And, and uh, those shelves that customers are starting to see empty, those will not be filled overnight. I was talking to the owner of a private liquor store last week, just a few days ago, and he mm-hmm. happened while I was there. A shipment had arrived on pallets of product. And I said to him, oh, yeah. I said, that's, that's great. You were able to get product. I understand it's very difficult. And he looked at me and he said, we don't even normally sell half this stuff. He's like, I just got whatever I could and I'm putting it on the shelves. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's, that's a creative solution. But I, I thought if it was that bad last, I think that was last Wednesday, where are we yeah. going to be at this week? Yeah, well, you're starting to see, you know, we, we are able to get some products still. I mean, I, I don't want to act like it's 100% of the product shut off. It's just those warehouses supply alcohol that are 40% of the alcohol in this province. And there's certain products we can only get there, right? So imports, products, spirits, or those ready-to-drink nudes and neutrals and stuff. What we're seeing, though, is the first people to be hit by this were the import agents, people who brought in products of the province. Their, their product is locked up in a warehouse. They, they're not making a cent right now, and they're starting to lay off staff. Same thing as cannabis retailers. Hearing from hospitality is, you know, they're from uh, liquor retailers as well as, you know, give it a week or two and there are going to be some bare shelves out there. One hospitality customer or um, business I was speaking with yesterday, they own a few pubs and a couple of cannabis stores and said, you know, if this continues a month, right, and I mean, we have rent coming up right, and maybe depleting their revenue, if it goes on for another month, they will likely have to shut down the company and lay off 600 workers. And that is insane. I'm, I'm, I was going to ask you about layoffs and what you learned, mm-hmm. uh, even from talking to business owners and from the survey, because that is also, I know you raised that concern last week, that if this continues. Yes. So what are you hearing then? That That's one company. Are you hearing from others as well that layoffs are potentially going to happen? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we're starting to hear about it more and more. So the survey showed that about 6% of industry have already started doing layoffs. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but think about this. 95% of the hospitality industry are short-staffed. So if we're in a spot where we're, we've been you know, three weeks ago begging for workers, and now because of the strike, we're in a spot where we're actually reducing hours and laying off some workers. So that that shouldn't be happening. The only reason it's happening is we're unable to access the products in those warehouses. And if this were just an inconvenience that we were having to shift product selection or we were, you know, have some bare shelves from here, that, that, that wouldn't be the problem. But the consequence of this strike is becoming much larger than that. And our industry employs 200,000 workers, so many of whom are worried about their jobs right now. And this just doesn't have to happen, right? So the, the, the way to handle this is simple. We need both sides to just hammer at that deal as quickly as they can so we can get everybody back to work. And what are you hearing also as far as profit losses and the range there? Yeah, so they're just starting to see some losses in the revenue as well. We've got about half the industries have already lost more than $5,000 of profit. About 21% have lost up to 20000 That's a tough pill to swallow when you think of the global pandemic we just fought, where through, through the last two years, pubs and bars and restaurants didn't make any money. I mean, we lost about 20% of the industry overall. We had some folks, you know, limp by and make it through, barely breaking even. Uh, and now we're in a spot where... After all the debt they've taken on and all the difficulties, they're losing money because they don't have products to sell. And it's, that's deeply frustrating for them. And you can understand where their nervousness comes from. And that's what they're looking at when they're just to become concerned about the viability of their business. Right. And I know this follows as well. This survey follows the open letter that you had sent uh, talking about the pain that is being caused by the dispute. Did you get any response to that letter or response from uh, to the survey? We've not received any response from them yet, although I, to be clear, I mean, we speak with someone in government uh, every single day, everything from, you know, just letting them know the impacts on our industry to talking about how we're going to restart uh, the distribution sector. Um, and the BCG has not responded to it either. But I, in some cases, I expected that. I mean, they, they both said they're going to have a media blackout during the negotiations. And, and you know, that's, that's understandable. They don't want to litigate this publicly. Uh, but our message is simple. While you guys are negotiating behind closed doors, there's an urgency here because you are hurting us. And we're not party to the dispute. We're not in that room having any, any ability to end it, uh, no matter who you know is right or wrong. Uh, for us, it's just this needs to end before we cause further damage to our industry. Are you concerned, though, it needs to get to the point or, or the whole point of this job action is for the public to notice? But to get to that point, there has to be more pain for business owners. Yeah, that's exactly where the nervousness comes from, that this is going to get worse before it gets better. We don't have to do that. We don't have to be a negotiating tactic here. We could look at what we're doing and understand that this strike is impacting a $15 billion industry of 10,000 small businesses and 200,000 workers. All of those businesses and those workers are not party to the dispute that's going on. And the right thing is to do is to keep them out of it entirely. So we need to get a quick resolution for this. You know, there's no logic to injure an entire industry in somebody else's labor dispute. Um, I, I certainly understand the purpose of the strike is you know, to cause some economic harm and put some pressure on government. But government, I don't know what they're feeling, but I know we're feeling the pressure right now. That, that seems a bit mistargeted. All right. Well, Jeff, I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. But thanks so much for this this morning. Oh, very welcome. Have a great day. You too. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. Well, as we've been hearing in the news, it was supposed to be a big morning. Everybody looking at NASA's Artemis mission set to launch during this show. It was scrubbed, though. For more on this and some reaction, we are joined once again by show contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning again. 
Hi, Jill. Oh, I was so excited to watch this launch. I had it all set up. I was going to watch it while we're doing our show. But yes, it's been scrubbed. And moments ago, I talked to Dr. Corey Nieslau. He's a pharmaceutical scientist at UBC. And I talked to him about his experiment that is aboard this uh, mission that's been scrubbed. Uh, so his experiment of sending yeast and algae into orbit was to learn about the effects of radiation on cells on this mission. Well, we know that experiment uh, is going to have to happen at a later date because that Artemis rocket uh, launch was scrubbed this morning. And Dr. Nieslau describes what happened for that mission launch. They were in the middle of filling one of the fuel tanks. And in order to uh, continue filling, you need to reach a specific temperature and pressure that did not happen. So they paused fueling at, while they investigated. And this is a, this was a known uh, issue that came up during a, what they call a wet dress rehearsal about a month ago. Uh, after a, a delay, uh, the decision was made to scrub. Uh, I get too nervous to watch. Uh, so I, I was listening on the run. <laughs> and uh, the, the main thought I had is that, you know, it it's a very uh, difficult and a, an extremely brave decision to make that call to scrub because 200,000 people uh, headed down to the Space Coast to watch. Um, Vice President of the U.S., uh, um, Kamala Harris, was there as well. So there is a lot of pressure to push forward. And I really, uh, I think it takes a special kind of resolve to be able to make the decision to, you know, for safety over everything else. Okay, but were you a little bit disappointed? Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> I wanted to talk with you this morning about, um, you know, how we're going to be uh, in lunar orbit in a couple of days, uh, but that will have to wait. The next possible launch date and time is September 2nd at about 1240. Corey, what does this mean for the experiments on board, including yours? You know, NASA is nothing if not deliberate, and they game out all possible scenarios. Our experiments have been tucked into their um, their canisters. They've been uh, stowed away for two weeks already, and they won't be activated until the spacecraft leaves lower Earth orbit, and that's still status quo. Um, and so our, that, that's one of the really nice things about, about both yeast and algae is that they can be maintained in this sort of stasis uh, until we want them to be activated and, and start to grow and proliferate. How historical is this mission and what it's trying to achieve? I would say it's pretty darn historical. That's not a very quantitative answer, but um, this will be the first time in 50 years that we've taken biological material. In, in the case of our experiments, it's yeast and algae, uh, several thousand different mutants outside of lower Earth orbit. And the reason that's important is because we've had the great fortune to go and, and have um, experiments on the International Space Station. But on this International Space Station, you are protected from high levels of cosmic radiation that come from the solar winds that are constantly being emitted from uh, the sun. Because the earth has an iron core, we're protected by this magnetic sheath that diverts all of those high energy particles. Uh, those high energy particles 
are very, very good at damaging our DNA, the proteins of our cells, pretty much everything um, that keeps uh, uh, living things alive. In the 50 years uh, between the last Apollo mission and now, we've developed some extraordinary genetic resources that we can use to test the effects of cosmic radiation. I see this as a marriage of, of space science and next generation genomics. So is this experiment meant to protect future astronauts? Yes, but not directly. So what we first need to do, need to know is what kinds of damage um, uh, uh, can we expect to see from exposure to cosmic radiation. So in, in other words, you really want to understand the problem before you start designing countermeasures. We know cosmic radiation damages DNA. Cells have five, six, seven different ways to repair the damage to your DNA. We don't know which of those types of repair is most important. So yeast, because yeast and human beings share half of their genes, um, meaning I can take a gene from a human cell, put it, put the corresponding gene into a yeast cell, and that yeast cell will be happy as the day is long. So evolution has conserved the function of genes between uh, yeast and human cells. And so we by sending these 6,000 different yeast mutants into an environment of high levels of cosmic radiation, we can learn which gene yeast genes are important for survival in cosmic radiation. Like which so, ones are, are resistant? It, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, this is I, so exciting. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, uh, I'm glad you feel that way. I, we certainly, uh, everyone in our lab uh, uh, feels this way. Um, and so once we learn which genes are important, then we can go to um, identify countermeasures because, as I said, there's been a lot of exciting developments in genomics since the last Apollo mission. We can figure out which genes, if we turned up their activity or turned down their activity, would help yeast and, by extension, astronauts and crew members survive in high levels of radiation. Just fascinating. And finally, Corey, you're a geneticist, not a rocket scientist. So nope. <laughs> I wonder when you were studying for your degrees, did you ever think your career would entail sending a shoebox sized experiment to space? Um, Raji, absolutely not. Um, but <laughs> you know what? The, the one thing that keeps keeps me going is curiosity. Like the idea that we can take our experiments that we've been doing for many, many years and package them, as you said, in a shoebox and send them to the moon, it's it really requires a curiosity and and a willingness to take risks. You know, today we didn't launch, but we haven't tried to get to the moon in 50 years. And we're trying now. And we will get there. And these samples come back to the lab. And then we can share the samples with anyone who has particular questions they would like to ask. Wow. So, Raji, he is particularly upbeat given what <laughs> happened today. And uh, what did he say? September 2nd will be the next window for this. 
Yeah, they'll try to launch again September 2nd. They have another date after that if it doesn't work out. Um, But it's so cool, Jill, that this project has come out of UBC. He's a UBC researcher. I just love these stories about space because we get so bogged down with the everyday and space science just propels us in that Carl Sagan way to think about how the world is, our worlds are so small in comparison to the vast, vast universe that we still have so much to learn from. Yeah, and I I didn't, and I remember or recall talking about this, but until this, I had no idea that there was such comparisons with yeast and, and humans and that they could do these experiments. Yeah, and like you said, it's been five decades since we uh, were able to get to the moon and orbit the moon in this way that we're hoping to with this launch. And so technology, genome technology has come so far since then, and we know so much more about yeast uh, than we did 50 years ago. And to make that uh, connection now and to test these things now, uh, matched with uh, science technology and space um, having improved too, it's, uh, it's very exciting. Well, fingers crossed for that launch on September 2nd. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. That is CKNW contributor Raji Sohal. Again, her conversation with researcher Corey Nislow. And September 2nd, the next window for the Artemis mission to launch off. We will keep you covered. Any details on that updates as well.